This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Chuck Collins. Privilege or wealth is a disconnection drug keeps people apart from one another and from building authentic, real connections and communities. When you have that kind of wealth, you don't really have to ask for help. You can buy all the services you need, but then you miss out on reciprocity, that important part of human existence, which is, I need help. Can you help me? And the vulnerability and connection that is created by that. Chuck Collins is co-editor at inequality.org at the Institute for Policy Studies and author of numerous books, including Born on Third Base, The Wealth Hoarders, and Economic Apartheid in America. Alter to an Erupting Sun is his first novel. Oh, well, Chuck, thanks so much for joining us today. I really want to get into the nitty gritty with you, so I'm excited. Me too. Thanks for having me. When I heard about your work, I had so many questions pop up right away, and I thought, oh, I really want to interview this person. <laughs> You've done such vital work exposing the contours of inequality in this country, and I just would love to begin by discussing how growing inequality simultaneously leads to growing instability, especially in the face of the climate crisis. Well, that is a very important framework. You know, and I spent a lot of time just looking sort of at the very narrow growing income and wealth gap. But when you realize is as wealth concentrates in fewer and fewer hands, it, it kind of has all kinds of disruptions. It disrupts democracy. It disrupts sort of economic stability. Having some people have so much wealth and a lot of people have nothing kind of fuels speculation and instability. And then Another form of concentrated power is in the industries that kind of drive our energy policy, oil and gas and coal and the sort of financial enablers that provide the financing for kind of extractive capitalist economy. They have seen their wealth and power radically concentrate over the last 40 years. So that that's one of the ways it, it kind of affects our environment is it makes it very hard to kind of shift the trajectory of where we're going. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I want to get more into the details of that response and in listen billionaire doomsday preppers for inequality.org, you write quote, our current system of extractive capitalism is preventing the transformation required of us. We need to rewire ourselves as a species and change the economic system that is destroying nature and producing escalating inequalities, end quote. So how does the 
machinery of inequality mirror the machinery of the climate crisis? I think of them as kind of interwoven machines or, or, or systems. The sort of more I dig in and learn, the more I realize really starting a century ago with this kind of rise of the Texas oil billionaires and the oil fortunes, you had a segment of business owners who invested heavily in shaping our political system. And that included kind of an aversion to taxation, government regulation, and kind of a clear path for unbridled energy extraction in the fossil fuel sector. So you have this one powerful segment of the economy and, and, and individuals in the economy kind of rigging the rules, if you will. And, you know, it's hard to envision this, but, you know, in coming out of the Great New Deal and even under President Dwight Eisenhower, a Republican, we had a very progressive tax system. Wealthy people paid high taxes. And there was a kind of, we, we were kind of beginning to grow together as a society after becoming very unequal. And even, even in terms of the racial wealth divide, you started to see by the early 1960s, a narrowing of the gap between white and non-white households. The concentration of wealth among the 1% being, let's say, 9% of all the wealth as opposed to 36% today. So you had a period of relative equality, not perfect in any way and still racially and economically polarized. But then this kind of reactionary fossil fuel sector really captured our political system, pushing their candidates, pushing the parties, pushing the whole system. So when you use the word, Ayana, the, the machinery, it really was about capturing government and using the government to kind of advance their interests. You know, anyone today who is sort of looking at this kind of collision course we're on between, like, we're, as we see more and more of the kind of disruptions, we realize our political system is completely ill-equipped to respond to the, the level of the crisis. And if you sort of dig into that, let, let's say you're saying, well, geez, why, why is Congress going to include the Mountain Valley pipeline in the debt ceiling agreement? You know, why, why a pipeline project? Why a, a plum for the fossil fuel industry? And you realize these folks really do have extraordinary power. And they've used that power, you know, and you could say a couple decades ago, it was about seeding denial. Oh, there is no problem. And then it was about seeding doubt and promoting sham science. And along the way, blocking alternatives, you know, blocking to put a cap on carbon emissions or transition to renewable energy. The same industry used their power to block those. And finally, here we are delaying. We know we need to rapidly transition away from oil, gas, and coal, but we can't. So even as part of, you know, a debt ceiling negotiation over the deficit, the fossil fuel industry has its way with our political system. And personally, I experienced this, you know, trying to prevent a gas pipeline from being built in my neighborhood in Boston. You know, they're building the, what was called the Atlantic, a pipeline that came up the Atlantic coast, bringing fracked natural gas to export terminals along the East Coast. But they were building this pipeline right into my Boston neighborhood. 
And so I got very involved in that, but I was sort of looking upstream and realizing we're not going to be able to stop this because the game is entirely rigged. The, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, is a captured regulatory agency. It, it does the bidding of the, of the industry it supposedly oversees. So all along the way, we see how the rules and the, and the regulations are tipped against those of us who are trying to create a habitable earth. Oh, absolutely. I'm in the midst of that right now with the campaign to stop a acid generating mine up here in Alaska. And it's incredible <laughs> how much our systems, government, policy, legal, and otherwise is literally set up to take from the earth and pollute. It's truly shocking, but not shocking at the same time, because we look around and we see what has become of these policies and governmental agencies, et cetera. So, well, there was a quote in your author Q&A, and you explain, when we look at the U.S. Congress today, we have to appreciate that we are looking at the end product of almost a century of industry manipulation and political capture. When a powerful industry, oil, gas, coal, use their wealth and power to shape and warp our current political environment for over 70 years, this is what it looks like, end quote. So, yeah, maybe there's like two questions here, which is who actually has the visible and invisibilized power to make broad decisions about resource use? And how does inequality at this level undermine both democratic process and corporate and government transparency? Yeah, great question. Maybe on the latter point, I think when we think about inequality of wealth, it's really about inequality of power. It's the power to influence our democratic system, the power to block things, which has been considerable over those 70 to 100 years, preventing us from taking soft energy paths, as Amory Lovins used to call them. We've stuck with the carbon extraction, the methane extraction path. So it's really that power imbalance. And, you know, the, the quote you mentioned makes me think, you know, also about the culture. You say, well, you know, 30% of Americans are not going to want to give up their large trucks or whatever. We have to understand that all we've been serving on the menu is carbon products. If most of us had known what Exxon and Shell knew 40 years ago, and our elected officials knew, we'd probably have more things on the menu. You know, you, you'd be able to take light rail or mass transit or be able to use an electric vehicle that was created 40 years ago and has been perfected or a decarbonized energy sector would, we would at least be more like Europe where we have many more efficient appliances and vehicles and choices, but we couldn't even become Europe in terms of per capita energy consumption because the fossil fuel industry at each step of the way use their wealth and power to block alternatives. So it's like going to the diner and all there is is one type of food on the menu. And you're kind of like, well, what's the choice here? This is all we have. So even the, the notion of what, what choices we have has been kind of constructed and manipulated over these decades. And then I think on, on the visible power, I think it's, you know, I think we can identify a couple dozen major global energy companies. And at this point, just a handful of major financial institutions that sort of prop up the whole sector. 
although you and I can talk about where the cracks or the weak spots in the system are, where the potential pressure points are. But you can see these the dozen biggest oil companies and then the, the natural gas players and the shrinking but still globally significant coal sector, all of which just have record profits. Even during the pandemic, they were just seeing their profits reach unprecedented levels. In 2021, the oil industry's profits doubled over the previous several years. So they're making a lot of money along the way. Oh, I guess going off, you know, what you just spoke to, I want to talk about how staggering inequity is normalized. And there was another interview that you did with NPR and you say, quote, Jeff Bezos was the first centibillionaire maybe in 2017. It's a new trend. I mean, just for perspective, in 1983, there were only 18 billionaires in the United States and now there are 657 today. So I don't consider that a good economic indicator. I think it's a troubling sign that too much of society's wealth and income is flowing upward to that small group of people, unquote. And gosh, it's kind of hard to wrap my mind around how dramatic this change is just across a few decades. And it makes me question how is extreme and growing inequality continually normalized? And how has this wealth been consolidated so quickly anyways? Yeah, you know, it it is interesting. I mean, part of it is over 40 years. I mean, if it had happened maybe over five years, we would have been more alarmed. But, you know, it has been a steady growing updraft of wealth, not just to the 1% people, you know, we, we, we talked about the 1% in 2009, the Occupy movement, but we're really talking about the one-tenth of 1%. People with $30 million or more all the way up to the billionaire class that is where almost all of the economic gains of the last couple decades are going. You know, they're, they're flowing almost all the way to the top. And then during the first two years of the pandemic, there was almost like a tragic concentration of wealth, you know, where the U.S. billionaires saw their wealth go from $2.9 trillion to $5 trillion in two years. And I think popular culture sort of mirrors it and somewhat normalizes it. There, you know, if you just look at the billionaires that show up in, in every movie now, whether they're creating dinosaur islands or dominating some conversation or political process, there is kind of a strange normalization, along with kind of a myth that people are where they are because they deserve to be where they are, meaning that somehow these folks have created something innovative and, and we're all benefiting from it, whether it's Elon Musk creating a Tesla or Starlink. Well, geez, don't these people, shouldn't they be well rewarded for what they're doing? So there's a, there's even sort of a story that goes along with it that justifies the extreme concentration of wealth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's really interesting in popular culture as well that people simultaneously are being like people want to be billionaires and want to hate billionaires at the same time. It's really, confusing what our culture conditions us to believe and want. You look at music or movies, you know, basically any media, and it's truly about wanting this luxury lifestyle with the private jets and the yachts and the access to anything at any time, anywhere. But then 
also building up a understandable frustration and even hatred against the people who do hold this kind of wealth. So it's kind of love and hate. And then, of course, the absolute majority of us will never be able to reach that anyways. But so many songs are money, 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 money. And then you grow up singing those songs. I think we're really being bamboozled. And I think we are in so many ways, but definitely around wealth and wealth accumulation. I can understand why so many of us are confused, even if that's unconsciously. Yeah. I have a funny little story, which is once I was giving a talk to a very large group. So I said, well, I'd like to do a poll here. How, how many people here admire America's billionaires for things that they've created? You know, half the people in the, in the room raise their hand. How many people here are suspicious or even resentful toward billionaires? Half the people raise their hand. How many people would like to be a billionaire? Everybody raises their hand. So, wow, that's, that's complicated. I think one thing that happened in during the pandemic was people sort of saw how the game was rigged and that inequality wasn't just sort of, there was something about unequal sacrifice and the fact that the billionaire class globally and in the US was seeing their wealth accelerate during a time of hardship for a lot of people. And that that fueled some sense of like, okay, the system is broken. Like we shouldn't have a society that funnels so much of our societal wealth to the top. There's something broken here. And that's where I think, you know, just in the last couple of years, you, you have a current president who proposed a tax targeted on billionaires. Well, that's the first time in modern history where, where you've ever heard that kind of policy proposal. And it's because such proposals are very popular across the political spectrum. People think that the super rich are not paying their fair share of taxes and should pay their fair share and we should tax billionaires and we should discourage these undemocratic concentrations of wealth and power. So I think there's there's a little more critical thinking now about whether this is a good thing or not. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think there is definitely critical thinking, frustration, questioning, which is, of course, we need that. It's the basis for change. But I think also it can feel overwhelming and a lot of us can feel powerless. Like what could we possibly do to change or shift this really corrupt system that is so entangled? And I want to talk a bit more about the wealth hoarding and how some of this has even become possible. In your book, you discuss the wealth defense industry. So it would be great if you could explain a bit more of the frameworks and structures that make up this industry and the ways that laws and banking structures are designed to enable wealth hoarding. Well, as wealth concentrates in fewer hands, those folks will hire their professional helpers, if you will, their, their enablers to minimize their taxation and maximize transferring wealth down their narrow family line. So again, think of people with $30 million or more, which in my view is plenty of money to have a good life. But at a certain point, it's about legacy. It's about how can I accumulate as much as possible and leave it to my unborn great-great-grandchildren so they don't have to work. So these are folks that have the ability and the money to hire tax attorneys, wealth managers, accountants. I call it the wealth defense industry. Their, their job is to preserve the capital minimize tax and 
create trusts and, and other mechanisms to transfer the money down the line. And it's a fairly significant sector. We're talking tens of thousands of people who pretty much get up every morning and say, how can I help global billionaires keep their money and get richer, accumulate more? And so they have a bias against tax and they spend a lot of their days designing various loopholes or transactions or various forms of ownership and trusts that sort of masks. And so at this stage, we estimate somewhere around 30 to $40 trillion owned by this ultra wealthy group is now in the shadows. It's pretty much off the ledger. It's not reachable for taxation or accountability. And the wealth defense industry will say, well, we're just helping our clients obey the law. But in fact, they're actively writing and manipulating the law. So here we have a situation where in the United States, the Internal Revenue Service, the not a very popular agency generally, but important in terms of making sure everybody pays their fair share, well, they're completely outgunned in their ability to follow all these tax shenanigans that this wealth defense industry creates. You know, here here they're up against some of the most powerful law firms and and skillful attorneys and you know these wealthy families even create what they call family offices which basically just run their affairs so this is kind of what an oligarchy looks like you know when you have a wealth class for whom taxes is almost optional they've pretty much opted out and delinked from the rest of society and that's part of the problem including as we talk about the ecological problem they think that they can hop in a private jet and avoid the worst consequences of ecological disruption i would argue that's delusional but nonetheless people have this idea that they have enough wealth they can maintain residences in six different parts of the world and and avert the worst aspects of social and climate disruption. Oh, it's so complex. The systems are truly set up to allow resource extraction to happen by any means possible. And for those who know how to play the game, the wealth hoarding game or whatever we want to call it, to keep playing it and to keep getting more and more powerful because, of course, they all collude together. And so it's really a rigged system that's working really well for a small amount of people. And I sometimes get trapped in what the solutions could be or what the changes could be to halt this or start to shift this in a more equitable, supportive direction for the majority of us and, of course, the earth and the more than humans that call this their home as well. And I know that taxes are something that has been brought up as a way to start to balance out the inequality, like a wealth tax or something like that. And in an interview with El Pais, you say, these are our tax dollars that work in the United States. If I'm a billionaire and I give $1 to my private foundation, I get 73 cents in tax reductions. We as taxpayers subsidize the charitable giving of billionaires. We should be skeptical and we should say, well, maybe they should pay higher taxes and society should decide how the money is invested. So I guess the first question here is how can we read systems so that taxpayers are not subsidizing the wealthy and so that taxpayers are also not paying for extraction and funding the kinds of systems that have led us to a place of such 
stark inequality and instability. And just to get a little more detailed here, we could say, oh, we want a wealth tax. And we say, you know, philanthropy is the breadcrumbs of capitalism. It's BS. It's a way for people to hold more money. And then they get to decide where those monies go. And a lot of times where philanthropy goes in, is into more programs that are actually not so great for the earth or for people. And so we say, well, we want a wealth tax. But so many of us are really discouraged about how our taxes are spent. You look at the Tongass National Forest. Our taxes were used to subsidize old growth logging up to a billion dollars, literally paying to log the last remaining old growth left on the planet in our national forest because it wasn't profitable, actually. Obviously, the war machine, like our taxes are, are being used for that. So I think to me, wrestling with this tax question, it's not that I don't want billionaires or really wealthy people to be taxed more, but I don't even like where our taxes go now. So I guess I'm kind of throwing it all at you in one big splatter. And so I'm, I'm sorry for not being more succinct here, but I definitely kind of mired in this. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. The first thing, and just, just to set the context, I, I, I kind of laid out a kind of dismal picture, but what I see are all kinds of cracks in that system, including people who work in this wealth defense industry who have kind of reached the end of their careers and are sort of feeling like, huh, all I've done with my life's energy is help the rich get richer. And so there are all these whistleblowers stepping forward. Pretty much everything we know about this system is because of leaks made by, you know, people working inside law firms, inside wealth management firms who've given journalists the Pandora Papers, the Panama Papers. A number of them have reached out to me and I've worked with them to get their stories out. So just on the upbeat note, there are cracks in the system and we're learning more about it. And we've learned that, okay, we, we know that a wealth tax would be good, but we have to start with dealing with some of the, the loopholes and the trusts and all these sort of complex ownership systems that the super wealthy use that are deliberately complicated. Hard for you and I to sit here and talk about because they're designed to be misunderstood or not well understood. So that's just one context. Your point about philanthropy is important, which is, you know, wealthy people are moving money to the shadows into trusts, into offshore corporations, into shell companies in different countries or in the US. They're also moving it into the charity sector. And some of that is going to good things. And now we're talking about the, the billionaire class. But it is another form of tax reduction and a way that people can concentrate their wealth and power and hold on to control. So philanthropy more and more is kind of becoming more top heavy, more dominated by, you know, the ultra wealthy. So yeah, we should be skeptical about it and we should change the tax laws around charitable giving so people can't just completely opt out of paying taxes. But you know, there's the problem of how do we raise our money and then the problem you point to Ayana of how is it spent? And that is another form of our democracy problem. You know, it's it's hard to get excited about taxes when we know, you know, so much goes into the military so much goes into sort of the corporate agenda that isn't helping it's actually causing harm so we have to both struggle around the priorities of government reasserting democratic control over how money is spent as well as a better system for making sure everybody's chipping in their fair share so there's the revenue side and then there's the spending side and you know i argue hey 
you know, we need to have fair tax system. Well, we also need to come back and make sure that the resources are used well. You know, even in the in the last couple of years, four years ago, Congress was debating a four trillion dollar investment bill that would have had huge investments in climate mitigation, permanently affordable housing, creating a modern childcare system. I mean, that was a visionary bill. You had a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president, and it was, you know, stopped really just by two votes in the Senate, you know, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. I mean, that's how close we came, we as a society, to passing a really big, bold, progressive spending agenda. So that's important to remember that because it was a near miss, but we may have another shot in the coming years. But it is hard to be excited about taxes when we see that the political capture and manipulation is spending the money on the wrong things. Yeah, it seems like tax itself is certainly not the democratic solution it's pitched as, especially considering the immense amount of lobbying that goes into deciding tax code and corporate tax breaks. And I guess it's just this question of in our current system, is just taxing even possible? Because I'm not sure how we can ensure or hold accountable that the resources actually go to communities. You know, where, who are the watchdogs? How do we actually speak up when we do see things that are unjust? Because things are really hidden. Whether it's the billionaires hiding their money or whether it's the government hiding within bills and hundreds of pages where percentages go, it's so convoluted. And so I almost want to talk about like, how to reform tax code for dummies or something. You know, it's like, I want it like really spelled out of what are steps we could take, you know, and I will add something about the philanthropy and I don't know these statistics, but I could imagine the majority of philanthropy is kind of questionable and the nonprofit industrial complex has its own issues, of course. But a lot of these programs and projects wouldn't be happening if it wasn't for some philanthropy. Like who's going to fund people fighting mining and old growth logging and coal. There are some nonprofits out there that are actually the kind of warriors for the climate, for the earth. Who's going to fund resistance movements if it isn't for philanthropy? And so I know these are two separate questions of getting more into the nitty gritty of philanthropy and what it funds in a beneficial way. And then also this question of how do we even begin to hold a type of tax reform accountable to make sure that the taxes are being used for our communities and that it is a just tax system. You know, I think we should celebrate and lift up the segments of philanthropy movement that are thinking about change, not just reinforcing the status quo. And we had a group of wealth advisors come to visit and talk to a a really inspirational woman from the United Kingdom named Stephanie Broby who's a wealth advisor. She worked for many decades, you know, in the traditional sector, helping rich people minimize tax and pass on inheritances. And she jumped the rails. And now she works with wealthy individuals who are trying to minimize their wealth, you know, give give away substantial amounts of capital and give it in ways that heal the harms caused by the extraction of the capital and also to pave the way toward a different energy policy. So it's very far thinking. And we are so thankful that there are people doing that work. So 
that is part of the contradiction here. I, I guess it, people sort of jokingly say, well, we're in the late stage of capitalism and we're at this weird point where some of the people who have benefited from the system are also seeing its harms and rebelling against it. And I take some encouragement in that in the same way I see people defecting from the wealth defense industry. You know, and I think on a simple level, for 40, 50 years, the rules of the tax system have been rigged to benefit capital, to benefit wealth holders at the expense of wage earners. And what we need to do is basically reverse that. We need to tax wealth. We need to tax work lower than we tax wealth. Low and middle income people should keep more money in their pockets and wealthy people should pay a fair share. Again, it's really interesting. There's this big fight over the the budget deficit and the debt ceiling that, you know, has been recently debated. And, you know, the Republican priorities were dismantling the investment in the Internal Revenue Service that was being made to enforce tax laws. That was their priority, along with, you know, getting Joe Manchin's Mountain View pipeline rammed through. So that's the that's one party's agenda and it pretty much, you know, one and a half of the political parties, that's their priorities. But, you know, that was the money that we were going to invest as a society to ensure proper enforcement and that the wealthy weren't just loopholing their way out of paying taxes. So, yeah, enforcement is important, good tax rules, and going after these kind of hidden wealth systems. And there's work sort of happening in each of those areas. Another area that I take encouragement is at taxing luxury consumption. We just did a report in the last month about private jets. It's not surprising to you that private jets are one of the worst causes of carbon emissions. And we as taxpayers effectively subsidize the private jet class and it's growing rapidly. You know, where I live, there's an airport that, you know, they're proposing to expand it four times simply to handle private jet traffic, private jets owned by the super rich. So that's a place where there's a good populist pushback. You know, yeah, we should tax private jets. We should tax the fuel and we should tax their sales and we should discourage private jet travel. And if we can't outright ban it, we should make sure the fees are very steep to cover the real costs of their harms they're creating. So I see a a lot of interest and pushback and movements growing and making these kind of tax demands central to how we fix the climate and how we fix the future in many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it could be central if our value system shifted. And I think there's something I get really focused on, which is the roots of the problem. For instance, if our taxes were paying for protecting the earth, protecting our food systems, our soil, our waters, making sure we had access to healthcare that wasn't just the pharmaceutical industrial complex or the medical industrial complex, then, I mean, I don't want to go into socialism here, but a lot of reason those of us in not the wealthy class need to make money is because we actually need to pay for things that could be considered common goods or just living a sustainable life, a healthy life with our families. And so I think if our taxes were actually going to maintaining or securing a healthy planet and a supportive uh, culture, 
then probably even those in the middle would be really glad to pay taxes because the taxes would be supporting them in ways that they were agreeing to. But even trying to get to a place where we agreed on what we need is complicated. Like I was thinking about, okay, well, what if the the wealth tax, you could, you know, decide off of a certain amount of categories where the money goes. It's just so hard. I mean, the corruption is so thick and whether it's in the nonprofit world or the government or even things that have good websites that make you believe that beautiful things are happening. You look a little deeper and then you go, wait, what is going on? Like, this is not what I thought I was donating to even my $20. You know, and I'm not saying this because I think there's no way out. I'm just somebody who wants to overturn the rocks and get to the root because I feel like, and and I'm not saying people shouldn't work on whatever they're working on to try to reform these systems. But I find when we work on the surface, we can kind of change things. But if our value systems don't change, then it's not that we're doing nothing, but we're not actually shifting it. And I think there's something really important too about philanthropy and power. And there was an interview with NPR and you explained, quote, it's not just about wealth. It's about the power that goes with it to shape the culture, including philanthropy and how they use their philanthropy and political giving to rig the rules of the economy, end quote. So wealth and taxes and the government are all in cahoots to shape culture and shape our value systems and shape our desires even. And so if we are wanting to reform philanthropy tax as well, how do we actually speak to the value systems that will help us create reform in ways that are truly, I don't even know the words. I hope any of this is making sense and that I'm not just babbling into the ether. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. And in some ways, I, I, I think about where do we have agency to enact the values? And it's not surprising that people trust their local government or their state more than they do the federal, because the federal government is kind of where the big corporate players have really exercised their power to capture it. But And some states have gone really different directions. But it's interesting to look at states that are kind of doing a better job of collecting money in a fair way and investing it in a way to create healthy communities. And, you know, where the focus is on, let's relocalize economic activity, let's build regenerative agriculture systems, Let's educate people for livelihoods that are in this region that are not based on sort of harmful sectors. You know, I always go back to think about Joanna Macy's framework, which is, you know, we need to stop the bad, we need to build the alternatives, and we need to shift our culture. And that can be done within philanthropy. We really need philanthropy, social change-oriented funders to help fund organizing to stop the harms, not just let these corporations have their way. But we also need to be kind of seeding uh, the new economy, the new society in the shell of the old. So how can we create healthy agricultural practices, regional economies, and then how do we shift the culture in, at the same time? And one of the things, I, I wrote a novel that came out this month, and it's, uh, you know, partly it's about what would it look like if some of these powerful local alternatives kind of played out and move to another a bigger scale over the next decade. Communities that are coming together to face climate disruption are creating a culture of mutual aid, a culture of local face-to-face celebration as opposed to, you know, everything on television, you know, looking at 
land and access to land and reparations and who's been excluded, looking at affordable housing and building permanently affordable housing that's outside the speculative market. So I see that in the region where I live, and I kind of tried to, in a fictional way, as a positive vision, sort of spell that out. What would it look like in the, in the decade ahead? How, how does that play out? So I think it's helpful to have visions and that are based on that different sense of values, along with all of our important work to kind of stop the big harms from rolling everything back that we're trying to do. Well, thanks for getting into the weeds with me there. I think in a lot of ways we're talking about dreaming into another world. And I guess there's this question of who gets to dream. You know, in a healthy society, we all do. We all get to have an affirmative vision and think ahead. When I was reading these columns about these billionaires who were kind of paying attention to the upcoming ecological and social breakdown, and their response is to go and and, you know, build a bunker in New Zealand or kind of a very privatized, personal, protect myself and my family, but not the rest of the world. And that's what I was saying is that's delusional because, you know, unlike a lot of other problems, the ecological breakdown, there is no planet B. There's no, you know, maybe that's why some of these billionaires are interested in outer space. But the reality is we have this amazing, beautiful planet that we need to take care of. And my, my rap to these billionaires is, look, you're not going to be able to find a private, personal, opt-out solution like you have for many other societies' problems when it comes to the climate crisis. You're going to have to rejoin humanity, bring your wealth home, bring it out of the shadows and out of the, the speculative casino marketplace and reroute it in local economies and in place and use it to repair the harms from the extractions globally. So you have to think not just about your own backyard, but other people's backyards, but bring the wealth home. And, you know, part of my interest in the hidden wealth system is, well, there's $40 trillion. There's the losses and damage fund that the, the, those of us in the higher income global north owe to the parts of the world that haven't burned as much carbon, that haven't extracted for their own selfish interests their Earth's bounty, we, we need to pay restitution and reparation to a lot of the society. So, you know, the wealth of nations is hidden in the offshore accounts of the ultra-wealthy. We need to bring it out and bring it home. And, and it's really an invitation to the individuals, too, is you're not going to flourish and your grandchildren are not going to flourish in that privatized security model. You're going to have to rejoin humanity, warts and all, pay your taxes, stop extracting in the way you are. And then at the same time, we as a society have to demand that. So there's a, a voluntary invitation. And then there's the rest of society saying, how do we organize to defend ourselves against these extractors and who are bringing us to the brink of societal collapse? You know, and there are people who are hearing that. And there are people who are stepping out of their privileged bubbles and trying to find ways to rejoin humanity and redeploy the wealth that they have in healthy ways. So that gives me some hope as I see those trends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, as we think about the future, I wanted to talk about your new book, 
which is speculative fiction, and thinking through future dreams and visions, and your new book, Altered to an Erupting Sun, which is described as, quote, a near future story of one community facing climate disruption in the critical decade ahead, end quote. Yeah, I'd just love if you could give us a brief introduction to the novel. Yeah, it really is the story of a community in New England that is trying to prepare and practice mutual aid and and figure out how to live within the Earth's boundaries and restore soil and sequester carbon and die differently. Think about death and dying very differently than we as a culture do, at least in sort of U.S. Anglo culture. Well, and I should say it's in the in, in the tradition of, you know, there's a lot of great visionary fiction that isn't just sort of zombie apocalypse dystopia, but, you know, the Ursula Le Guin and Kim Stanley Robinson and Octavia Butler and others who have, you know, painted visions of the future that show us possible ways of how we could be together and live in harmony with the earth. So I'm kind of writing in that same spirit. But one of the purposes of the story is, well, how do people respond to this impossible news of the moment that we're in. And my main character is a lively woman named Ray Kelleher, who is kind of the the life of the party. She's the weaver of social movements. She's a longtime nonviolent direct action trainer. She's kind of like a Starhawk. People know Starhawk and who also wrote a great visionary novel called Fifth Sacred Thing. And Ray Kelleher is at the end of her life, this is not a spoiler alert because this is how the book begins, but she's facing down a terminal illness and she has been a kind of a death doula and a death, death and dying, conscious dying kind of support advisor to lots and lots of people. She decides she's going to go out taking her own life and the life of the CEO of a fossil fuel company who she believes has acted to delay humanity's response to the climate crisis. So she goes out with this shocking, horrific act of violence, which is completely outside of her life experience. I mean, this is somebody who, Ray Kelleher, most of her adult life participates in the salamander crossing guards, you know, the here in New England, in the warm first nights of March, the rains fall and the salamanders and the frogs come down the hills and crossroads and to get to their spawning ponds for their their orgies. And so they, they get run over. And so Ray is part of this group of people who have such a respect for life that they stand out with reflective vests and flashlights and try to help these critters get across the street. So that's that's just like who she is. So part of what the book then does is say, well, let's look ahead. What's happened as a result or what ripples has this action had looking forward? And not surprisingly, there's tremendous negative blowback. There's a criminalization of dissent and movements to face the climate crisis are set back in some ways because of this. And on the other hand, there's a laser focus on the role of the fossil fuel industry in doing what you and I have been talking about here, which is to pretty much block the alternatives. And so that creates a new conversation and new openings there. And then, you know, seven years later, we, we get to see how things have shifted. And at kind of a birthday celebration, seven years later, her friends and family sort of ask, well, why did she do this? You know, what in her life shaped her and formed her? And so then it's really also a story of formation going back to her being 19 years old and living through the social movements and forces of the last 40 years. So it's about her formation and how she 
while she's deeply rooted in sort of nonviolent tradition, her understanding grows of how this particular industry has manipulated everything and how she believes that they are responsible in a higher level way than just all of us are responsible. So anyway, that that's the theme and it's been an opportunity to discuss and this is what her daughter says at the end of the book, you know, what my mother, what Ray did was wrong, but what bold action will you take to defend our one and only home, the planet Earth? And that's really the the spark for the the conversations that have come out of the book. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, I'm excited to curl up with that book and I really appreciate the focus on community building and in an article you wrote for Yes Magazine called One Way to Skip Wall Street and Invest in Your Community, you write, instead of opting out of the community, opt in with gusto by relying on public transportation, education, recreation, and other community resources, end quote. So yeah, I'd love to dream into what it might look like to intentionally invest in diverse communities and to focus on sharing wealth within localities. I think that there are great examples emerging of people who won the lottery at birth, you know, inherited substantial wealth or started a company and received a windfall of rewards, financial wealth coming at them, and who are kind of asking that question of like, wait a second, what do I do now? And I've sometimes said privilege or wealth is a disconnection drug, keeps people apart. It keeps people apart from one another and from building authentic, real connections and communities. And when you have that kind of wealth, you don't really have to ask for help. You can buy all the services you need, but then you miss out on that important part of human existence, which is reciprocity. I need help. Can you help me? The vulnerability and the connection that is created by that. So I've kind of tried to make the case to young folks who are, you know, won the lottery at birth. It's entirely in our selfish interest to shed this wealth and the privilege and straitjacket that goes with it and come home. And coming home is being based in a community, not a elite enclave, but a community of authentic reciprocity and where people depend on one another and invest that wealth in institutions, in organizations, in enterprises, yield control of the wealth to others. And, you know, I, I see that happening in lots of places and you see formation of cooperatives, you see new farms, you see younger people getting involved in food production and all the sort of value-added enterprises. How do you build a new economy in the shell of the old? Well, capital is part of that, but capital doesn't necessarily run the show. Capital should be subservient to the community and to labor and to work workers. And once we understand that capital is a useful thing, but it doesn't get to call the shots, you have a very different framework for how you build an economy. I don't know if you call it socialism or decentralism. I think it's just a better new system. It doesn't have an easy tagline. New economy, some people call it, or solidarity economy. But yeah, I think that bringing that wealth into place, again, recognizing that we have to support places in other parts of the world where the wealth has been extracted and Wealth needs to return to those places as well. But yeah, I see a lot of exciting work in that kind of new economy space that that also addresses sort of historic racial inequities, a sort of form of reparations. Mm, Yeah. I was thinking about back to the conversation we were having about accountability, kind of 
makes me think also of the morality or the propaganda of wealth. And I think that there are these cultures of belonging that you're speaking to that's about investing in each other. And then the kind of rugged individualist culture that so many of us are conditioned in, which are kind of like pull yourself up by the bootstraps, or if you just work hard enough, you'll get it, or um, everyone has the same opportunity. And so, yeah, I, I would like to debunk this with you a bit and maybe talk about the difference between those who believe that if you work hard, you'll become wealthy. And if you're not doing well financially, it's because you're lazy or something versus those who invest in each other and their communities. It's kind of like, how do we culturally shift to see beyond the veil of this morality that surrounds ideas of wealth country? Yeah, it does. It does go to this myth of deservedness. People are, if you have a lot of wealth, it's because you deserve it. You got up in the morning, you worked hard, you whatever you did to create that. And if you don't have wealth, or even if you're economically struggling, well, you deserve that condition because you haven't worked hard or there's some limitation or failing on your part. And that's just a cruel societal myth that is promoted. People will promote that narrative of deservedness to justify these extreme inequalities and, and racial differences. And one of the things I've seen is people stepping outside of that, you know, well, what help did you get? What role did society play in your having a decent life? Did you go to a high school that had public investments that helped you in any way? So, you know, hearing some of these patriotic millionaires and billionaires talking about how, instead of just talking about, oh, how I, you know, got, I invented this you know, new technology or whatever, talk about all the ways they got help. And I think of it's kind of like seeing the web. And this is, it's a little bit genderized. I think men tend to start, you know, with the, I did this, I did that story. And there's a sort of web that other people see. It's like, well, we're all part of this web. You know, there is no rugged individual. None of us were raised by wolves in the, in the woods or whatever. You know, we, we are exist entirely because of this web. It is sometimes invisible and sometimes money renders it invisible deliberately or undeliberately. But the reality is no one does it alone and no one is going to make it alone. And the more wealth people have, the more they forget that. So I think that's part of how we debunk the myth is say, you know, let's tell true stories of how interdependent we are, for starters, and critique the sort of great man theory of wealth creation or the mythology of you are where you are because of something you did. And the more you look into that, the more you realize how multi-generational advantage works and multi-generational advantage and disadvantage, that it goes back multiple generations. Trauma flows over generations and privilege and opportunity flows over generations. So no one can be born and say, I'm here because of something I did. There's all wind blowing one way or the other. It's either blowing into your face or it's blowing at your back. And debunking that mythology is absolutely critical to this project of building a more equitable society. Yeah, I really appreciate that you spoke to this myth because I think it's one of the underpinnings. It's part of the roots of our value systems and how we feel about each other and also just respecting each other or not respecting each other. And yeah, there's a lot more questions to ask, but I know we're coming up on our time. So 
I'm not sure if there's something that you'd like to end on. What's on my mind coming out of the conversations of from the novel is where do we have room to move? You know, I think there's a certain amount of despair and a sense of loss. And if you kind of look at the objective moment we're in, it sort of feels like, okay, we're we're in the backseat of the car and the car is heading to the cliff and we can't even affect the steering wheel or whatever, you know? And as an organizer campaigner, I'm always sort of looking out for the pressure points or the places where we have some room to move. And I think there is a lot of room for us to move. I think, you know, there's withdrawing money from the fossil fuel sector, the divestment movement and the movement to put pressure on the lending institutions. There's all this interesting work around getting insurers to stop insuring the fossil fuel sector. There's a move to say, well, let's, what if we did like a international or at the national level, a tribunal that looks at sort of the climate, the role of the fossil fuel industry and in funding, doubt, delay, denial, just so we get clarity that this is a rogue sector that is incapable of stopping the harms that it's creating, that we have to figure out whether it's through nonviolent direct action or through withdrawing social license or, or creating authorities to buy their assets and keep them from being burned. There, there's, you know, we should zero in on the pressure points where we do have some ability and room to move and, you know, realize that each year it's going to be more obvious how the planet is being disrupted, the flooding or the heat waves or the smoke in your eyes or disruption to our food system. And that that at each moment, as people wake up and realize that there's going to be an opportunity to sort of focus attention on the role of this industry in bringing us to this point and essentially halting and reversing. So I think there's all kinds of things we can do to focus on sequestering carbon and building soil fertility and regenerative agriculture and the tools and things that we consume. But there's also stopping this industry that's bringing us to the brink. So. That's the conversation on my mind lately and looking for the places where we could each make a difference in that space. Oh, Chuck, thank you so much. This has been a really wonderful and interesting and challenging conversation. And thank you so much for spending this time with us today. Yeah, thank you for your really thoughtful questions. Thanks for listening to For the Wild. The music you heard today is by Veed Geiger, Sean Smith, and The Ascent of Everest. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Julia Jackson, Jackson Kroof, and Evan Tenenbaum.